welcome to the agroinnovations.com podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona, and in this episode, we will be continuing with part two of our interview with uh, Alan Savory, who is the founder of the Holistic Management Framework and also the founder of uh, the organization Holistic Management International. Uh, in the first interview of uh, this two-part interview, we talked with uh, Alan Savory about holistic plant grazing, uh, holistic goal, what is it, the effect holistic plant grazing has on land health. So if you have not had a chance to listen to that interview, I strongly encourage you to go to our website, uh, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, and uh, you can get up to speed. And if you have uh, already listened to that, then sit back and enjoy part two of this interview. I will be concluding with uh, some general comments about some of the work that Agricultural Innovations is doing with Holistic Management International, and also just some general uh, comments uh, about the podcast, so uh, stick around for that as well. Now here's our part two of our interview with Alan Savory of Holistic Management International. Could you talk about how a group of people or even a single person uh, go through the process of developing their holistic goal? Yeah, it would be easy. Let's let's just talk uh, of a single person, but it, it'd be no, no different with a bigger group, essentially the same. Um, in the first thing you do is say, what is the whole that I'm involved with or that we are involved with? Well, if it's a single uh, person, it would be that person. It would be their, their, their resource base, which let's say they've got a farm, for instance. It would be their farm. It would be their friends, government people, university people, extension people who are their resource base but do not actually make their decisions. So they need to be aware of that. And then it would be whatever money they could either had or could generate from their resource base because that's the minimum thing we need to look at is the people, uh, the resource base, and the money. Now, the people, what we'd be looking at is who actually makes decisions or has veto power over decisions. So if it's a single person, let's say with a family on a farm, it would be that person and his or her family, okay? The other people in the resource base, extension people, bankers, uh, people they trade with, borrow from, whatever, they're very, very important, very vital. Uh, that whole farm can't exist without them, but they do not actually make decisions and they don't actually have veto power. So they put in the resource base, the land would be in the resource base, and then the money would just be noted as it's whatever could be generated from that resource base. All right, now that person's family, having determined that they're the only ones that actually make decisions, would form the holistic goal. So that first step is essential, and getting the right the people in the right place is essential. Now, in forming the holistic goal, for example, if I was helping that family, the first question would be, um, you're not an organization, so we don't need a statement of purpose. You're just a family living on its farm. Now, what we need is a quality of life statement. That's the first thing. And so the question would be, how do you want your lives to be based upon what you value most deeply in life, depending on your spiritual values, whether you're religious or atheist or whatever you are, uh, how do you want your lives to be? 
and we'd spell that out, uh, we'll get them to spell that out. So they want to be prosperous, they want to have a stable family, they want to have a balanced life, whatever it is, it is personal, it is theirs. When you've exhausted it and got it all written down, uh, you then move to the next step, is to say, okay, if you want to live lives like that, then from your resource base, what do you have to produce to enable you to live that sort of life? So if they wanted to be prosperous, we'd have to produce profit. Don't spell out what the profit's from because that would be a decision. And no decision can come into a holistic goal. So we just know profit. If they wanted um, to be secure, you'd have to say, do you mean financial security? In which case it would be covered by profit. If you mean physical security, then the more profit you have, the more wealth you have, the more insecure you will become. So you'd get them to start thinking about what would provide security. And in the end, they'd probably come down to things like understanding that they need to ensure that people around them have meaningful work, meaningful uh, lives as well. Otherwise, they're not going to be secure. So you'd spell all this out. If they want balanced lives, what do they have to produce? And you just keep going until you've covered every statement in the form, in the quality of life they want. It has to be covered by some form of production, otherwise it will not happen. Now, when they've got that, uh, um, they go to the third part. Now, that is the future resource base. And in this, we divide it usually into two pieces. The first, let's deal with, is the land, as this is a farming family. Now, no matter how bad their land today, it doesn't matter if it's full of big gullies and erosion, bare ground, masses of noxious weeds, whatever, you ignore that. What you do is describe the land in a condition that it will have to be 100, 500 years from now for this family to still be enjoying that sort of life. And we do not describe it in terms of species, because those will change. We describe it in terms of process. What will the water cycle have to function like? What will the mineral cycle have to function like? What will the biological community dynamics have to be like? What will the solar energy flow to wealth and all life have to be like? So we describe that land like that. If need be, we even map it, if it's at all complex. And then the final bit <coughs> is we return to the people in the future resource space. This family has to trade, has to deal with government agencies, bankers, all sorts of things. Now, the family wants those people in its resource space to support them and to be loyal to them forever, uh, come to their rescue if they need help, buy their products without question, etc. Now, what the family can do about their resource base is nothing. All they can do is to uh, deal with their own behavior, and they will be judged by their behavior, and the people around them will respond to them depending on their behavior. So the family here would say, all right, if we want this loyalty and support from the people in our resource base, how will we have to behave? Now, you're not looking at a mission or a vision or a mission statement or any marketing tool. You're looking here at your actual behavior 
because in the end you're judged by your behavior, not by your mission statements, etc. So you would be describing, or the family would be describing, that they have to be honest, have a good attitude, open, uh, helpful, etc., etc. Now, when we've got these three parts written, we would get the family to understand that this is their first attempt at it. They won't have spoken as honestly as they might uh, later because people are just unused to this depth of thinking about how they want their lives to be, especially married couples, etc. So we'd say, look, this is just set in plastic and you'll keep refining it each year, but begin to make decisions towards this. Now, that family will have all the usual objectives, grow corn, raise pigs, whatever it is, all the usual goals to go on a holiday, educate the kids, whatever it is. Uh, they may well have a mission statement for their marketing, uh, you know, for their products. All the normal decision-making goes on. But when they are close to a decision, having gone through the normal decision-making, which is always based on one or more factors, it doesn't matter whether you're the most sophisticated scientific team or simple uh, pastoralists in a desert, you'll always make decisions on past experience, research results, expert advice, friends' advice, cultural norms, cash flow, expediency, cost effectiveness, laws, regulation, fear, etc. So when they're close to actually making each of their decisions now, they would just run them through seven little tests towards this holistic goal. The holistic goal acts like magnetic north, guiding all of their decisions now. And that's how the process works. And if we're dealing with the land, we assume we're wrong because of the extreme complexity, and we monitor to pick up the earliest possible indicators to indicate whether the decision is going in the direction we want or not, and, and adjust from that. So it's a very proactive management of, of land. But all of it, I stress, is driven by the holistic goal, and that is the key to the success of holistic management. Can you talk about monitoring, uh, its importance, and uh, maybe a little bit of, about how it's done, and especially uh, within the framework of uh, holistic planned grazing? Uh, I can. It's it's not a key area. Uh, a lot of people don't even do the monitoring properly, and they're still highly successful. So, you know, I, I talk about it with reluctance uh, because I think what we need people to understand is the key things, which is the holistic goal and the testing questions and how that deals with complexity. The monitoring, as I say, is, is highly ideal. Uh, we certainly try to get people to do it, but uh, I would say that over 50% of the people managing holistically don't monitor, and it doesn't seem to have mattered. They've still uh, improved their lives and their land tremendously. But the monitoring, uh, as you've asked me to talk about it, is uh, when we're managing land is a different concept from what we're used to. We used to take our actions towards objectives and goals assume we were right subconsciously even if we didn't say it and then we would monitor to see what happened and then we'd adjust and thus we had adaptive management and all the other the things now with holistic management 
we assume we are wrong, no matter how much we've tested the decision, no matter how much it's backed by research, etc. And on the assumption that it's wrong, we say, in this particular decision, on this particular land, what should I monitor or measure to give me the earliest possible indication of trend, which way this is going? And then I can change if it was wrong. If not, I can keep on the path. So we're now monitoring to make things happen. We're monitoring to produce a specific result, whereas we used to monitor to see what happened. So if I could pose a question to illustrate that difference, I sometimes have people say to me, used to have them when I was helping them on ranches, they'd say, Alan, if we manage holistically, what's going to happen to our deer or our impala or our kudu or whatever it was? And I would say to them, that's the wrong question. And they say, what do you mean? I say, that's the correct question if you are managing with the universal framework, with grazing systems, etc. The correct question is, if I do this grazing rotation, if I do this grazing system, what's going to happen to my deer? And you'd better monitor and find out. Now, with holistic management, what you do is you decide what you want to happen to the deer. Do you want to increase them? Do you want to decrease them? What do you want to happen? Now plan your grazing. Now plan your land management actions. Assume you're wrong and monitor to produce the result you want. You see, it's a totally different mindset. Alan, uh, what evidence exists to support holistic management on rangelands? Uh, let me contrast that with range science, can I? Sure, go ahead. Okay, because it's people in range science who ask for that. If we look at, uh, at range science, it's really an oxymoron. I don't know where the science is. If we look at the science, we have two scientific, inverted commas, scientific principles on which the whole profession is based. One is that resting land restores biodiversity. That's fundamental. It's unquestioned, and it's uh, been there since I first got exposed to range science. Now, the second is that overgrazing is due to animal numbers. Okay. Now, both of these are myths. The resting land does, or resting the environment, does restore biodiversity. It restores it in oceans, in lakes, in rivers, because they're perennially humid. It restores it in tropical forests and high mountain areas and areas of the world where, on the land where we have perennial humidity of the atmosphere and the soil. And where we see failed civilizations that were abandoned in those environments, we find them under the recovered vegetation, the jungle, as in the Yucatan, etc. Now, when we look at the bulk of the world's land, which is seasonal rainfall, uh, where the distribution of atmospheric humidity and soil humidity is very uneven through the world, uh, through the year, and there are long periods of aridity, sometimes in the growing season and certainly in the non-growing season, we find in those environments resting land 
is probably the most damaging action that humans can take, even more damaging than chemicals and bulldozers. Uh, now, resting, and yet rain science was based on that being beneficial. Now, resting land, we've discovered, can take two forms. The one is total rest, as we see with experimental plots all over the United States, where range scientists put in experimental plots to prove their paradigm that the land would recover if you stopped overgrazing plants. Okay, those are total rest. When we look at these plots, wherever they are in very seasonally arid environments, particularly with low rainfall, we find they have desertified seriously. Now, the other form of rest is what I have termed partial rest. This is where you do not totally rest the land, but you have animals grazing on it. They can be wild or domestic of any species, but they're no longer functioning naturally. They're not in large herds. They are not bunching to avoid pack hunting predator as a defense mechanism, and they're not moving on their home range and territory in an unimpeded manner. So the plants get overgrazed because the animals are too static, and that's a function of time. The soil and the plants don't get adequately disturbed because the animals move gently, put their feet gently, because they're not in each other's body space. So the bulk of the land and the plant material rests, the soil surface rests while plants are being overgrazed, and we call that partial rest, and the effects of partial rest, if we look at the experiments all over the Western United States, the effects of partial rest and total rest are almost identical. The land desertifies seriously. Now, under range science, uh, as we practice it worldwide, the two greatest um, influences or practices are overgrazing of plants through grazing systems and rotations, etc., and partial rest of the land. The two things that lead most to desertification, and then that is supported by fire to try to keep grasslands healthy in the absence of animals and to try to prevent grasslands from moving to noxious plants, woody vegetation, etc. So we now have overgrazing of plants, partial rest of the range, and periodic fire, the three main agents of worldwide desertification. So there is no science behind that. The science is very, very clear, as I always make plain in my talks and in the textbook, Holistic Management. Now to your question, what evidence is there that holistic management and plan grazing works on the land? There is all the science behind it. There is the science that shows that Overgrazing is a function of animal uh, behavior and timing of exposure to the plants. And as we control that with holistic plant grazing, scientifically, we expect the land to improve. And lo and behold, when we monitor, it does. The science is clear behind partial and total rest. So with holistic plant grazing, we try to maximize the physical animal impact of the animals and maximize the graze-trample-to-recovery ratio because the timing is important for the soil and the vegetation. 
And when we do this, lo and behold, the range recovers. Even in droughts, we get range recovery. And then if we can exclude fire uh, for most uh, purposes, use it for fire breaks, use it when it passes the testing towards the holistic goal, but not use it to try to control woody vegetation and, the, and to get a green flush of grass, because we can do all that with livestock. So if we try to minimize the use of fire and use livestock to return to animal-maintained grasslands and savannas as they would have been prior to human uh, killing off of most of the animals and trying to replace their role with fire, we have all of that back as far as I can make out by solid science, no myths. We've now done away with the myths. And where we do that, we see and measure land improvement. So, for example, as, as you are aware, on the uh, HMI's learning site in Zimbabwe, uh, Dibangambi Ranch, we are now running 400% more livestock than the ranch originally ran uh, 30-odd years ago. Uh, we have had a dramatic increase in wildlife and can have anywhere up to 300 elephants sometimes on the place, anywhere up to 500 buffalo some days on the place because they're free to move. We've had a really encouraging improvement in the river, which now flows most years throughout the year. It'll have water in it. It's now got crocodiles in it. It's got otters in it. It's got fish eagles and fish. Now, all the similar size catchment, similar soil rivers surrounding us are bone dry even in the rainy season. They just flash flood and then they dry. So, you know, the evidence on the ground is there. The science is behind it. And what is frustrating is really just how do you get humans to change, particularly when we're faced now with worldwide desertification, all the poverty and violence, people dying and so on because of the symptoms of desertification and global climate change. So really, we either need to expose what I'm saying as uh, faulty. Uh, there are many people who say I'm a charlatan and not a scientist. We need to expose that if it's true and get rid of me, or we need to heed what uh, we're saying at HMI and move forward with it. But we can't afford to go on for another 25, 30 years of uh, debate. Now, Alan, uh, quickly, uh, we're about out of time on this, but I'd like you to uh, explain to the listeners, perhaps someone's listening to this and has uh, you've piqued their interest in holistic management, uh, what are some of the first steps that a new initiate needs to take to uh, start managing holistically? What, what are your recommendations? Well, I would just recommend they get, get help, get knowledge and help. Just if, take an interest and contact HMI, which they can do, and they can get help. Uh, some, you can get, they can get the textbook. They can get the simpler book that Ann Adams wrote, At Home with Holistic Management, or they can get the textbook and the workbook. Some people can learn from that. I know that I could have done so, but some people learn better by just practicing or by getting training and help. So the first step for anybody is just get more knowledge and contact HMI, Holistic Management International, to get that knowledge. And, and HMI, that's their business, is to help people 
and organizations just understand better. We will link to Holistic Management's website uh, for this podcast so that people who are interested can get in touch. Alan Savory, I'd like to thank you for your time. This has been an interesting interview, and uh, I hope people enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you, Frank. That is the end of part two with our interview uh, with Alan Savory, the founder of Holistic Management and the founder also of Holistic Management International. Currently, Agricultural Innovations is doing some work with Holistic Management International, mainly focused on helping them uh, systematize some of this evidence uh, that Alan Savory was talking about in his talk, the fact that water cycles and mineral cycles are improved through holistic planned grazing and holistic management. There are some very compelling examples of this, and Holistic Management International is doing everything that they can to make these compelling uh, examples accessible to people and getting that information out there, systematizing it even better than it already is, and, you know, really telling this story to people. And so we uh, are working with holistic management on that. So if anybody out there who is a holistic management practitioner, uh, old or new, and they are interested in this type of documentation effort that is going on currently at Holistic Management International, I would encourage them to get in touch with myself. Uh, there's a contact form on our website for you to do that, and uh, we can talk about what's going on with this in more detail. I know that some of the that uh, Holistic Management International has linked to this podcast through their website. So I know that some of the people that are listening to this are some of the holistic management practitioners. So it's an exciting time to be practicing holistic management. There's some exciting things going on with it. There's some great news on that front. And everybody who is practicing it, we'd like to hear more from you and more about your stories. I'd like to give a shout out to Mike Moon, who sent me some great information for developing future podcast shows. He sent me about three different names of some people who are doing interesting work in the area of uh, permaculture and sustainable agriculture with some contact information. So Mike, I will be getting in touch with those folks to see if they are interested in participating in uh, the next episode or the next few episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast. I do have an episode coming up with Richard Manning, who is the author of several books and essays on agriculture, farming, and and the effect and relationship that humans have with farming and have had with farming through 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 the history of civilization. So if you are interested in those issues, please stay tuned because that interview is forthcoming. This is the agroinnovations.com podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. You can visit us at agroinnovations.com slash podcast, or you can get in touch with me, much like Mike Moon has done, uh, and send me some great contact information. Help us get the word out about the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Saludos.